I'm going to ask you to join me and stand this morning as we turn our attention to God's word and continue in an attitude of worship and pray that he would encourage us and instruct us uh, through his word this morning. So let's pray that God would do just that. Father, we come before you this morning and we are so grateful that you are more than enough for us, for all of the needs and concerns that often weigh us down. Father, we pray as we come into this place that we would give our hearts and our minds to you, that we would focus our attention on you and allow you uh, to use your word in a very therapeutic, healing, encouraging way this morning. Father, I, help you, I pray that you would help us to uh, really almost think outside of the box as we consider the reality of heaven and the incredible future that awaits us as those who have been faithful in following you here on earth. Father, I pray that this would be an encouragement to those who have lost loved ones. Father, for those who are suffering with illness, struggling uh, with uh, disease and impairment. Father, I pray that we would take our eyes off of this physical, temporal world, which your word says is not truly uh, real and lasting. And that this morning, by the power of your Holy Spirit, who indwells us and who enlivens this word that we hear from this morning, would help our minds to grasp just the incredible future that awaits us. Father, again, thanks for this time that we could share together as members of your body, and we pray that your uh, Holy Spirit would truly be our teacher this morning. And we ask that in the matchless name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who made all of this possible. Amen. You can have a seat. Uh, several years ago, when I took my very first fly fishing trip to the Green River in Utah... Has anyone ever been to the Green River in Utah? Fly fishing? Okay, there's a man after my own heart back there. But uh, the first time I went, I went with a friend of mine who's uh, just a consummate fly fisherman. He's also uh, the resident conductor of the Omaha Symphony. And just an amazing guy. And when he invited me to go to the Green River, he said, it's like no place you've ever been before. And so I began to anticipate, what's the Green River going to be like? What's the fishing going to be like? I mean, is it going to be nice? Is it going to be, you know, like the Colorado Rockies? Is it going to be like my home state of Washington? Uh, will there be good camping access? I mean, are there fish? If there are fish, are they catchable or is it very difficult fishing? And, you know, all kinds of questions ran through my mind. And as you uh, begin to wonder what is a place going to be like, it kind of tempers your excitement with a little bit of apprehension because maybe it's going to be a desert. Maybe there aren't any fish in the river and the whole 10 days is going to be a bust. But the second time I went to the Green River, it was a completely different experience. And that was because I had been there before and knew what to expect. The second time I went, I was giddy with excitement and couldn't wait to hit the road. In fact, I left on a Sunday right after preaching just like this. And I don't even remember if I preached the whole sermon. I was so excited and focused on getting to the Green River because on that second trip, I knew what to expect. I knew that it was absolutely gorgeous territory. That it's up high in the Utah Wasatch Mountains and that it's just absolutely perfect temperature. 
the, the water, the reason they call it the Green River is because the water actually looks green as it kind of goes through these red canyons on both sides. And I also found out that the camping is just absolutely wonderful. We canoed across the river and found just this incredible pasture to camp in. It was absolutely amazing. And the best thing was I discovered that there are 1,500 trout per fishable mile on the Green River and that you can catch them really easy. In fact, it's almost like they look at you and say, catch me, please, here. You know, it's just an amazing experience. And so the second time I was just excited. And the difference between the two trips was the first trip, I didn't know where I was going. I had some ideas. I looked at a few picture books. I'd heard from my friend. He told me what it's like. But the second time I'd experienced it, I'd been there. I knew what it was going to be like. And I couldn't wait to get there. You see, sometimes knowing about a place makes all the difference in the world. It could be the best place in the world that you're going to. But if you're not aware of it, if you don't know anything about it, you might not be as excited to get there. But once you know something about it, once you've experienced it, then you're excited. I really think as Christians, we face a very similar situation when it comes to heaven. Our ultimate destination. You know, we all say we want to go there. As Christians, we're all ultimately headed there. And yet, it's very difficult for us to get too excited about getting there and going there. Because I don't think we often have enough information. We don't really know what heaven is actually going to be like. And so, that lack of knowledge ends up tempering our excitement a little bit. And we are a little more apprehensive and ambivalent about actually getting to heaven. Though we always talk about what a beautiful place it's going to be and how wonderful it's going to be. We don't really have that much information or that understanding oftentimes. It's interesting, uh, uh, Time magazine has conducted a poll several different times over the last 10 years. And, and in the most recent poll, they polled people and asked people, do you really believe that heaven exists? And from that poll, they learned that 81% of all Americans, Christian, non-Christian, whatever, 81% of Americans believe that there is a place called heaven. Now, 66% of the people interviewed about heaven said, I don't think we're going to have bodies there. It's going to be, uh, you know, we're going to be disembodied spirits that just kind of float around, you know, again, strumming our harps and that image that we get from Sunday school and that kind of thing. So 61% said no bodies. Now, 85% said heaven is going to be like nothing here on earth. It's not going to be similar at all. It's going to be totally different. It's not like we're going to have trees and water and all that kind of stuff. It's going to be totally different. 88% said that they really believed that they would see people they knew on earth and that they would know them and be able to talk with them. So it seems like people have some kind of understanding of heaven. It's just unfortunate that oftentimes we don't have a very accurate biblical understanding of what heaven is going to be like. And so this morning, what I want to do is take a little time as we wrap up this series that we've kind of been going through on dying to live and talk about heaven, because I think it's very difficult for us to get excited about heaven and to motivate, allow it to motivate us to holy living and to really pursuing God with our whole hearts until we really understand what scripture actually teaches us about this place that we're all headed. 
And so by taking a closer look at our fantastic future, I think it can motivate us a little bit and make us. Uh, now, I, I really hesitate with this kind of message because I don't want any of you to get there before your time. You know, and, and as we look into what the scripture says, you might get so excited. You know, I, I want you to be careful. here. This is dangerous information. And so, you know, handle it with care and with wisdom. But I want us to understand this morning two aspects of our eternal future. And the first aspect that we want to talk about is the process that God is going to use to create our fantastic future. And then the second thing is not, not only the process, but then the place that he will create for us as a result of that process and understand exactly what heaven is going to be like the best we can from the scriptural evidence. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, the process God is going to use and the place he's going to create. So first, we need to understand a little bit about how is God going to go about creating this place that we're all going to go, the process that God will use to create our fantastic future. Now, I'm convinced that one of the things that really confuses us as Christians and probably all of us as people is what's going to happen to this present planet? I mean, what's going to happen to the earth and all of the planets out there? I mean, is heaven somehow just kind of, you know, ethereal, filling all of the space in between all of the planets and these are going to still exist? Or how is God actually going to go about creating this place that we call heaven? Well, I want you to turn with me to Second Peter, chapter three. Second Peter, chapter three, and we're going to look at verses one through 13. And I'm going to try to read those quickly because there's a lot of a lot of scripture this morning. But second Peter, chapter three, verses one through 13, because in this passage, Peter really explains to us uh, and his readers what exactly is going to happen, how God is going to create uh, this place that we're going to stay for eternity, uh, for eons and eons without time. Now, just a little bit of context here about Second Peter chapter 3. Paul is writing to believers who are experiencing incredible persecution and difficulty in their life. They're being martyred for their faith. They're being persecuted for their faith. It's an incredibly difficult time for followers of Christ. And so one of Peter's motives in writing this is to encourage them and to say, you know, look above, look ahead, look towards this fantastic future, because what you're experiencing now is not all there is. That this is simply a precursor to this amazing future that God is in the process of creating for you. And look at what Peter says to them, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3 of his second letter. He says, this is my second letter to you, dear friends, and in both of them I've tried to stimulate your wholesome thinking and refresh your memory. I want you to remember what the Holy Prophet said long ago and what our Lord and Savior commanded through the apostles. Most importantly... I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again from before the times of our ancestors? Everything has remained the same since the world was first created. They deliberately forget that God made the heavens by the word of his command and he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. 
But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord. And a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Now, listen carefully to the next verses. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along on that day, he will set the heavens on fire And the elements will melt away in the flames. But we are looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth. He has promised a world filled with God's righteousness. So a couple of things here that that Peter talks about. There's really two issues that he discusses. First of all, he says there's a day coming that's called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is referred to in the Old Testament prophets and in the New Testament here. And it's the day that all of human history will be, uh, you know, will be fulfilled. It will come to an end. And it's on that day that God will finally pass judgment on the earth for all of its sin, for all of its wickedness, for all of its evil. And the way that he's going to do that is that he is going to destroy the world with fire. Now, the first time he destroyed the world or wiped out uh, everyone but Noah and his family with a flood, with water. Now, this time it says that God is going to destroy the heavens and the earth with fire. It's very interesting. The word that he uses there for heavens is a word that refers to, you know, outer space and deep space and all of the sky that surrounds the earth and everything in it out there. And so what he is saying is that all of that out there is going to be destroyed with fire. And then he also says that even the earth itself, this very planet, the elements that make it up will be destroyed with fire, that they will melt away. With flame. Now, when he says destroyed, it doesn't mean that they're going to be annihilated or completely just, you know, like disappear. But the word really refers to being dissolved, being totally disintegrated. What he's talking about is that God is going to take this present planet, marred as it is by sin, as we can see in Romans chapter 8, how even the earth itself is groaning for redemption and groaning to be freed. From the the marring of sin and all the ways that it's impacted this world with storms and floods and tsunamis and earthquakes and all of those things that are a result of sin. And God's going to destroy this earth, but he's going to melt it all down in a sense from what the scripture says to its most basic elemental form. He's going to purify it through fire and all that's going to be left are the basic elements. Elements, the basic building blocks. And then from that purified matter, God is going to once again speak and create a new heaven and a new earth. It's going to be an amazing process. 
Now, I know some Christians, some evangelicals, you know, really are skeptical about this whole global warming thing. And, oh, this is a liberal agenda and it's all Al Gore. He made it up and created it just like he created the Internet or, or whatever, you know. But, you know, biblically, I think we need to take another look. Now, I'm not saying that global warming is true or not true. But think about it for a minute. If the Bible says God is going to destroy this earth and this world with fire. Might it not make sense that over time, again, as a result of our sin and our sinful use of the the resources of the planet and our overconsumption and our greed, which is melting away the protective covering that God placed over the earth. Maybe it makes sense. I'm not saying it is. I'm just speculating here. But maybe it makes sense that ultimately that's how the earth is going to be destroyed. Is our own doing in a sense. And God's going to allow it to happen. And the entire earth is going to flame up and melt. And, you know, scientists tell us if the earth was even like a fraction closer to the sun, we'd be consumed. If we were a fraction farther away from the sun, we'd be frozen out. So I don't think it's just, you know, total folly to say, well, maybe there's something to this. Maybe uh, in the future, something like that might happen. I'm not saying it will. I'm just saying it's something to think about. But what we do know without question is God is going to take this present earth, all of the heavens and everything that's out there, and it's going to be melted away. It's going to be destroyed as God's judgment on sinfulness And then God is going to take those basic elements and recreate, renew a brand new heaven and a brand new earth. And when Peter says here that that we're waiting for a new heaven and a new earth, and the new is uh, uh, literally means newly made. It's not like something brand new that we've never seen before, but the Greek word literally means newly made. And so God is going to take all of that and and recreate it. That's the process that he's going to use to to get us a new heaven and a new earth. Now, the exciting part. And that is, secondly, we need to understand what's the place that God is going to create out of these basic elements that he has now purified and, and is going to come back as the new heaven and the new earth. And we can find details for that in Revelation 21. So I want you to turn there, Revelation 21, and we're going to look here at verses 1 through 5, and then we're also going to uh, take a little look at uh, chapter 22. But what exactly will the new heavens and the new earth look like? I mean, what exactly is eternity going to be like? How will that place be different than what we experience now? And how will it be alike or similar to what we experience now? Now, In all honesty, we have a major difficulty answering these questions because Scripture isn't just super specific. And the other challenge that we face is in our finite minds, it's almost impossible for us to completely understand the scope and the magnitude and the grandeur of what God is going to create. I mean, I don't think our human minds this side of eternity can even begin to, you know, think about what is going to happen. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says that eye has not seen, ear has not heard, and it hasn't even entered into the mind of man what God is preparing for us. 
So, I mean, this is like nothing we've ever seen, nothing we've ever experienced before, what God is going to do. But I want to look at some basic characteristics of this place, this new heaven and this new earth in in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. And listen to what the Apostle John writes as he writes uh, from this this spirit induced dream or trance that is communicated to him on the Isle of Patmos. Listen to what he says. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one seated on the seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. Amazing what God is going to do. Look at some of these characteristics of this new heaven and new earth again. Four characteristics. First of all, he says it's going to be new again. uh, This newly made, newly created. It's going to be just like the Garden of Eden after he, he just created it. Absolutely flawless, perfect. Not tainted by sin in any way. It's going to be entirely new. Secondly, he says... That it's going to be dominated by the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Look again at verse two. He says, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I mean, it seems like the new Jerusalem, this holy city is going to be the focal point of the new heaven and the new earth. I mean, if we were to say right now, you know, what is the focal point of planet Earth? I mean, uh, uh, for us as human beings, we wouldn't probably say Jerusalem or we wouldn't probably say somewhere on the planet. We'd probably say, well, if I really had to think about it, the sun, the sun is kind of the, the focal point that we all focus on. It's the source of you know, physical life in that sense. But in the new heaven and the new earth, the new city, the holy city of Jerusalem, will be the focus. And Scripture tells us elsewhere in Scripture that the holy city is going to be a cube, in a sense, 1,400 miles square. Now think about that. Just one city. If you drove from Minneapolis to Seattle, that's about 1,400 miles. And the New Jerusalem is going to be 1,400 miles long, 1,400 miles wide, 1,400 miles high, 1,400 miles deep. Just in a massive city that's going to be the focus of the new heaven and the new earth. And I don't think that we're just going to walk around on the bottom of that. I think in this new orientation, we will occupy the entire cube, in a sense. We'll be in a completely different definition, uh, dimension. If the holy city will be the focus point. Thirdly, the new earth will be a place where God literally lives among us. God will once again... Dwell with us, just like Jesus did Emmanuel, God with us for a very short period of time. But once again, it will be like the Garden of Eden when God was with Adam and Eve and strolled with him in the garden and they talked and they conversed and they had a 
relationship as they were originally created to have with God, that will be restored. And God will be the very center of our lives and we will have relationship with him. And then finally, the fourth characteristic is that the new earth will be a place where God himself ministers to each one of us personally. Think about that. God himself wiping away our tears, taking away our sorrow, taking away all of the painful memories, all of the hurt, all of the guilt, all of the shame. God himself wiping it away and it will be gone forever. And I believe every idea, every concept of what it means to be sad or sinful or ashamed will just be obliterated from our our minds and our hearts. And we will be totally and completely free once again. Amazing place. And then if you turn to chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, listen to this description of what it will look like. It says, Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street of the holy city of Jerusalem, he's speaking. On each side of the river grew a tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. No longer will there be a curse upon anything for the throne of God and of the lamb will be there and his servants will worship him and they will see his face and his name will be written on their foreheads and there will be no night. No need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them, and they will reign forever and ever. Amazing. The place that God is preparing for us. And I believe that it will be very much like the new earth, will be very much like the present earth we inhabit, except without any of the flaws, without any of the taint of sin. You know, I want you to think just for a minute. Think about the most beautiful place you've ever been in your life. I mean, just for a minute with me, this little mental exercise. Think of the most beautiful place you've ever been. For me, that would be places like Glendalough in Ireland, which is just absolutely amazing. Tortola in the Caribbean, where we just came from. Banff. National Park in Alberta, Canada. Those places are so pristine and so gorgeous. And if you could take the most beautiful place you've ever been, And multiply it by a hundred billion, a hundred billion billion. It would not even begin to come close to the beauty of the new heaven and the new earth that God is creating for us. Scripture says that it hasn't even entered into our mind what God is preparing for us. You know, that should motivate us. To live life, not just anchored in the temporal, not just consuming here on earth, but truly living for the future, recognizing that our life here, even if it's 80 or 90 or 100 years. And Robert, we're glad you made it to 80. But you know what? Even at 80 and my grandma's 101, it is a drop in the bucket. It is just we're still in training wheels in eternal schemes. But when we get to that new place that God is creating for us, we will be absolutely perfect in our bodies. The new earth will be absolutely astounding in its perfection and its beauty. 
the new Jerusalem will maybe it will hover above the earth. I don't know how it's going to happen, but this massive 1400 mile square city made of pure gold and crystal. Twelve gates, each one of them made from a single pearl. Now you think of a city 1,400 miles square, and you think about how big those pearls are going to have to be to have a gate go through it for a city that big. Not even Donald Trump could come up with something like that. It's going to be amazing. And you know what? It's all for us. Because God loves us so much. And Christ paid such a great price So that we could be renewed and redeemed and enter back into the paradise that God created us to originally live in. God is not going to let us go without a fight. We'll have to kick and scream to get away from God and the place that he wants us to be. But some people will succeed in not getting there. And, you know, the only way that you can get there is simply by trusting Jesus Christ and the work he did on the cross and recognizing there's no way you can be perfect enough. There's no way that you can make up for all of the wrong that you've done, that you're separated from God by your sin. And that all you have to do is say, Father, I accept the gift that you gave me in Christ, just in simplicity and sincerity. That's all it takes. You don't have to walk across broken glass. You don't have to walk on some historic, you know, uh, sawdust aisle. You don't have to come up here and kneel necessarily or anything like that. Right where you're sitting, if you truly accept the the gift that God has given you in Jesus Christ and say, the only way I'm going to make it to heaven is by allowing Christ to cover all of my sin, trusting his work, and then he makes you holy and blameless and you're fit to enter into that absolutely, utterly perfect place forever and ever and ever. Let me share this poem as we conclude. No action steps this morning because I, 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 I don't want any action steps like getting to heaven early or anything like that. But, but I want you to listen to this poem that John Piper wrote about heaven. It's called Justified Forevermore. Maybe just close your eyes. Just, it's a, a, a little bit to it, but just allow your mind to just go wild with what heaven is going to be like. As far as any eye could see, there was no green, but every tree was cinder black and all the ground was gray with ash. The only sound was arid wind like spirits, ghosts gasping for some living hosts in which to dwell as in the days of evil men before the blaze of unimaginable fire had made the earth a flaming pyre for God's omnipotent display of holy rage. The dreadful day of God had come. The moon had turned to blood, the sun no longer burned above, but blazing with desire had flowed into a lake of fire. The seas and oceans were no more, and their place, a desert floor, fell deep to meet the brazen skies, and silence conquered distant skies. The Lord stood still above the air. His mighty arms were moist and bare. They hung as weary by his side until the human blood had dried upon the sword in his right hand. He stared across the blackened land that he had made and where he died. His lips were tight and deep inside the mystery of sovereign will gave leave and it began to spill in tears upon his bloody sword for one last time. And then the Lord wiped every tear away and turned to see his bride. Her heart had yearned for a thousand years for this. 
His face shone like the sun and every trace of wrath was gone. And in her bliss, she heard the master say, watch this. Come forth, all goodness from the ground. Come forth and let the earth resound with joy. And as he spoke, the throne of God came down to earth and shone like golden crystal, full of light and banished once for all the night. And from the throne, a stream began to flow and laugh. And as it ran, it made a river and a lake and everywhere it flowed. A wake of grass broke on the banks and spread like resurrection from the dead. And in the twinkling of an eye, the saints descended from the sky. And as I knelt beside the brook to drink eternal life, I took a glance across the golden grass and saw my dog, old Blackie, fast as he could come. She leaped in the stream almost, and what a happy gleam was in her eye. I knelt to drink and knew that I was on the brink of endless joy. And everywhere I turned, I saw a wonder there. A big man running on the lawn. That's old John Young with both legs on. The blind can see a bird on wing. The dumb can lift their voice and sing. The diabetic eats at will. The coronary runs uphill. The lame can walk. The deaf can hear. The cancer-ridden bone is clear. Arthritic joints are lithe and free and every pain has ceased to be and every sorrow deep within and every trace of lingering sin is gone. And all that's left is joy and endless ages to employ the mind and heart and understand and love the sovereign Lord who planned that it should take eternity to lavish all his grace on me. O God of wonder, God of might, grant us some elevated sight of endless days and let us see the joy of what is yet to be. And may your future make us free and guard us by the hope that we, through grace on lands that you restore, are justified forevermore. Amen.